Hello, welcome to a bonus episode of But Where Are You From? A podcast by BC in Britain's East and Southeast Asian Network. I am Amy and today I am talking with Sophia and Kimmy about On Your Side, which is a new UK-wide support and reporting service for anyone in the UK who identifies as East and Southeast Asian who has experienced racism or any forms of hate. Do check out their website. It is onyoursideuk.org. I had the great honour and privilege to work alongside Sophia and Kimmy on the design side of the website and I can certainly vouch for how integrative and inclusive it has been. The process included uh, so many community organisers and organisations who work on the ground alongside East and Southeast Asian people in the UK and I think this is quite a groundbreaking service to be honest because I think previously there lacked a space for people to receive culturally sensitive care when they received any form of identity based hate so this is to me quite a big deal (laughs) so do listen on and thank you for tuning in and engage with our social media if you have any thoughts on this episode thank you so so much well we are bang on time for recording podcasts I think we should just jump right in because I need to make sure I extract every single minuscule bit of information from the both of you about exactly who you are and what you do and of course the on your side service so anyway I will jump in uh, first of all I would love to know just your names and a bit about yourself so maybe Sophia do you want to kick off yeah of course so I'm Sophia I'm a design researcher for the diverse data program at genomics England which basically means I'm trying to make the way your DNA is analyzed less racist <laughs> um, and then and then on the side of that I'm also a freelance researcher and designer looking at the impacts of child sexual abuse and also various anti-Asian hate crime work. Thank you so much Sophia and same question to you Kimmy. Hello I'm Kimmy uh, and I'm a community organizer, a human rights advocate and founder of ESAS uh, which, stand, which is East and Southeast Asian Scotland Um, And in my job, uh, I work with Protection Approaches, and that's a charity which works to prevent all identity-based violence. So that means we work to try and prevent anyone from being targeted because of something about how they are or are assumed to be. And that can be your race, your religion, sexual orientation, age, political affiliation, gender, immigration status or ability. So I'm the project coordinator for this very exciting and soon to be launched service uh, led by Protection Approaches. It's called On Your Side. um, And it's it's basically designed to support and um, help East and Southeast Asians report any form of um, uh, racism or any other forms of identity-based hate. It's probably worth mentioning that Kimi and myself met by, I was doing some of the research for the website of On Your Side, and that's how we met. Yes, I do want to delve into that because I was part of this really interesting meeting about the design of the service. So that is, yeah, I think will be a great interest to listening in and wanting to find out more. Uh, But actually, I want to find out more about you two and who you are. So, of course, a podcast is called But Where Are You From? And um, yeah, I know I've had various conversations with both of you individually about that. But let's just let the listeners know uh, sort of at this time. But where are you from? Kimmy, could you let us know? So I was born in Borneo. Um, Borneo is an island that is shared between three countries. Um, that's Borneo, oh, sorry, that's Brunei, Indonesia, and East Malaysia. So I'm from a small town in Sarawak called Miri, which is the territory of East Malaysia. Um, 
So to be very specific, I actually belong to an indigenous Kalabit tribe from the highlands of Borneo. Uh, and I'm also mixed with Iban, which is a Dayak lowland tribe from Borneo. And also aside from that, my dad is uh, of Chinese, Japanese, Scottish heritage. So I'm very, very mixed. Mm. Um, yeah, um, I moved to Scotland when I was 14 because my mother remarried. And, and I've been here ever since, uh, except for that one random year that I spent in Switzerland. Don't know what that was all about. Oh yeah, you were looking after kids, weren't you? I remember you telling me about that. Yeah, no, in Switzerland, I actually went to uni in Switzerland. Um, and then when I came back to Scotland after Switzerland, I was like, I don't want to do hotel management. So I just became a nanny for, for a few years. How old are you, Kimmy? 35. This is like a lifetime worth of stories. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think we could do a podcast about all about Kimmy's like life experiences, what you've done and everything you've been through. But I think uh, you've gone into quite a lot of detail about like where you're from and who you are. And have you ever done these sort of ancestry DNA things? Or is that something you've just heard from your family that they've told you? Because I have no idea about me and I really want to do those um, DNA tests. Yeah, I mean, my mom's from this indigenous tribe and she's the she's her tribe has only had contact with um, the outsiders in the 60s. So I know that from my mom's side, I'm 100 percent club it like because they're very, uh, very sort of old race or new race. I don't know how you even how do you classify that, Sophie? I don't know. But they were basically untouched until 16, uh, until 1960. I can't remember when. Um, and then the for, like forcefully converted into Christianity. <laughs> um, so I know for, for a fact that I'm half Kalabit. And then on my, on my dad's side, yeah, there's a lot of like mixes, like different mixes in there. So that's a bit of a, don't know how true any of that is. Um, it could be anything really, to be honest. Yeah, I think every family has their like, oh, well, certainly mine has their law about where we're from. Like some people say, oh, we're, there's a bit of Iranian in us. And that's why you have oh, nice. to hear Amy. And I'm like, how true is that? Like literally no evidence apart from hearsay. <laughs> how about you, Sophia? Before I go, yeah. just a little like tip to save your money with DNA testing. But um, they are historically very, very rooted in mainly European and even within European, I'm talking specifically Iceland, the UK and America data sets. So because because so many people from those, what we call ancestries have donated their blood to be sampled, you can actually sequence a European ancestry person up to like the village they were born in. So you Mm -hmm. can be like, oh, you're from a small town in Sunderland. If you're anywhere else, and particularly it's a huge problem in what's called east asian data sets which actually encompasses all of southeast asia as well as east and southeast asia but anyway um they actually don't have as much detail and i can give you a great example my neighbor is singaporean um muslim singaporean and donated their um dna for research and it came back and it was like we actually don't have enough samples from people similar to you to be able to give you a breakdown of your ethnicity so be really wary of these tests and also where those datas are from and like I'm sure there's loads of, of gaps in where your lineage is but at least the family stories are like validated for your family. Oh, why does that not surprise me at all? Yeah I know the way none of us will look shocked at all. <laughs> yeah I mean that would be completely useless for me then because my mom's tribe is I think there's I think there's less than 6,000 of them in the world so yeah, like, me, I wouldn't even exist. I would be like, what are you? You're an alien. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, that's just so sad, isn't it? it But that's why it's such an interesting, well, the job I'm in is trying to like straddle that challenge in terms of you have to, in order to fix that problem, right? You need more people to donate from all of those different samples. But how can you ensure, and I don't think I can, how can you ensure that the service is going to be fair and that those people are going to get a fair diagnosis compared to like, anyone else who might donate their sample and you can't so it's just this never-ending chicken and egg situation mm-hmm. and but would it help if people did start donating even if you weren't looking for your ancestry would it help to just send it in and be like I just want to help with the data set it would but it wouldn't probably you personally if you donated your sample probably wouldn't feel the effects of that benefits of that science until way da- later down the mm. line so it's a very altruistic thing because you're giving your d- dna for like the future of research that um, is me sophia i'm very altruistic go. <laughs> get your vein out do it <laughs> also just want to preface i'm not a genetic scientist sir, so take all of this with a huge lump of salt <laughs> any information you give me i'll just take it you know i don't even care like you already know way more than me you're qualified in my eyes <laughs> exactly oh dear um oh but to answer where i'm from nowhere near as interesting but um my mum's side is irish working class irish and also british working class as well um my mum's grandparents met in Croydon. we've i've lived there my whole life except for very recently when i moved to north london scandal um, <laughs> and then my dad is from vietnam um he and all the male members of my family were Vietnamese boat people who were refugees from the war um but actually our surname Lu is actually derived from a Chinese surname Chinese surname Lu right so it's the Vietnamese spelling of a Chinese name so I wouldn't be surprised if we also have Chinese lineage um but I in general when people was like where are you from I like to categorize myself as British Vietnamese and I know that captures a whole diaspora of people and not just someone such as myself who's mixed and living in Britain but also people who are like British born Vietnamese and and whatnot but I just like the label. Mm-hmm. Similarly my parents were boat people too from Vietnam or people who were forced migrants um, from the outcome of the American Vietnam War and it's only really recently that I sort of delved into that because I usually call myself British Chinese and then someone spoke to me online because I started talking about the fact that actually my parents are from Vietnam they were born there and came from there although ethnically they identify as Chinese and someone said well does that mean you're Viet Hoa and I was just like what does that term mean I've no I've never heard of it and they explained it to me I thought yeah I guess I am (laughs) it's literally a year ago I found out about this term Mm -hmm. and it actually really changed my perspective on our history and who we are and that's so much more complex than just British Chinese and but I really appreciate both of your very generous answers to that because it's never simple you know it's never never an easy answer actually I'm not sure if I should share this but it makes me look awful but on the con on the concept of forced migration but I'm sure as all of us can maybe identify when people are forced to migrate so is their language right and it's almost like frozen in time or evolves with a new context And for a really long time, um, I was taught that the word for Chinese in Vietnamese was not Ngui Hua, which is what you said. Um, I was taught that it was Ngui Tao, right? Which means like boat, like boat people, I think. Mm -hmm. Anyway, 
I went to Vietnam for the first time a few years ago and my dad asked me oh I've always wanted to learn Mandarin can you go around and like see if there's any books and I was walking around and as you can imagine like not exactly looking like the most stereotypically Vietnamese person as it is I was just walking around as this like perceived white girl in these shops and going hey have you got any um, of these books on like Ngui Tao right and they're all just like looking at me and being really standoffish and then oh. I said said to my auntie at the end of the day I was like oh I've spent all day trying to look through this book in Chinese language and I can't and she looked at me and she just went just so you know they're called Nguihua and you should never say that word again and I think I I think I accidentally had been using a racial slur all these years so oh wow wow yeah. I wasn't sure if I should share it but <laughs> I thought it was a good example of like I don't know I think it's yeah it is an important example of growth because you know we grow up so removed from uh the the country of our heritage of the language that we speak that of course we're going to have a very distant view of certain words and no I definitely identify with that because I don't know if you've read a BC article recently by someone called Chrissy Koo but she talks about how she had to relearn or redevelop her relationship with Cantonese because growing up it was actually a language that was used in a very negative way towards her by family members say very disparaging remarks and so she had a sort of negative relationship with Cantonese and it's only now that she's trying to relearn the language to learn you know more joyful words and words that related mm-hmm. to more happy terms rather than you know this memory that she had of Cantonese being used against her really and I had a mm-hmm. similar kind of relationship with that like I was just like yeah you're right like I was criticized a lot growing up in Cantonese mm-hmm. and then recently I saw this Hong Kong documentary called um revolution of our times and it was about the Hong Kong protests and in that film a lot of people were speaking Cantonese but talking about the hurt they were feeling and the trauma and um, all spoken Cantonese and it's a really new way that I was hearing the language being used in order to show vulnerability and I just broke down from the first minute of that film to the very end I could not stop crying and I think in part of that it was because they were using Cantonese and it really I think cut me to my core because it's the first time that I heard it used in such a way where people were being their full selves and no I, I completely understand how you saw need to reprogram sometimes that relationship with language because as you mentioned we've been removed from the countries where those languages are spoken natively yeah do you do you both find that like because listening to that also makes me think about the influence of the western ear right so like for example you know how like loads of people in England tend to find that the German language is very harsh to their ear and they prefer the sound of like the French and those boys called the romance languages <laughs> problematic but yeah. um, <laughs> is there a similar thing do you find with the languages you speak or are familiar with or raised with and how they are perceived in a western ear because for example like you know the classic nail shop thing where everyone's like oh my god everyone in the nail shop is talking about me and I'm like how do you know because half the time you know they're just chatting about work and the other time they might be talking about you but how do you know and they're like oh the tone it's just the tone it's such an angry tone and it's made me grow up thinking that the language is really harsh but as as you were saying with your story in the Cantonese like I feel you're I'm reprogramming myself as well Mm. what do you think Kimmy I know like I I grew up hearing very disparaging things about um the Chinese language yeah the Chinese languages because um Malaysia is a very racist country 
Um, but now I'm trying to rebel against it. And I really, really want to learn Mandarin, especially. And people always say disparaging things about Mandarin. And I actually find it to be a very beautiful language. So I'm kind of, um, I'm actually, I, I totally understand the sentiments. Um, so yeah, I'm like, def- I, I really want to learn Mandarin. I think it's a really, really nice language. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I think it's something that I've exacerbated myself and been disparaging about Cantonese from, you know, hearing it and speaking, thinking, oh, yeah, it does sound really harsh, but maybe it's because my parents always used to diss me in Cantonese. (laughs) My my relationship with it. But as time has gone on and I've met so many other Cantonese speakers, I'm just like, Cantonese rocks. Like, yeah, our insults are really horrible and that's great. (laughs) What What are some of the insults? Oh, it's so bad. Like, yeah, it's pretty bad. <laughs> like, die in the street and stuff like that. Just horrible things. I remember putting on my Instagram recently and thinking, actually, should I put this on? Because I am so used to it. It doesn't seem that bad to me. But people really go, oh, so you guys say die? Like, just go die to each other? That's really horrible. <laughs> uh, but yes, thank you so much for your answers to that. I really appreciate it. And yeah, it's, it's an education already. We're hardly... At the beginning of our podcast, I'm already learning so much. Kimmy, especially with your work with ESAS, East and Southeast Asian Scotland, um, I was looking on the website and it is such an amazing space that you've created with sort of helping the migrant community and holding befriending services. I mean, could you let us know actually a bit more about that and how you work with people really closely who are actually hugely compromised by systemic oppression? Yeah, sure. Um Thank you for, for saying that. Um, so yeah, we work predominantly with uh, with women at the moment. I, I We used to work with men and women, but because of like various like safeguarding issues, we've had to keep it to just women for now. So we work mainly with women that have been trafficked, uh, mainly from Vietnam at the moment. We want, to ex- we, we, wanted, we want to invite other migrant communities as well when we get more funding. But, the, you know, it's quite difficult to, to, to hire so many different community organizers that specialize in these different communities. Because I don't believe in like hiring one community organizer to serve like different communities. Like we have to be very culturally competent, I think. Um, and even within that, like, you know, I learned that, you know, you can't expect a Vietnamese community coordinator from Ho Chi Minh to understand how to serve a community from Nghi An, which is like North Coast, you know, like very specific and different dialect as well. But it's, yeah, yeah it's, 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 it's a lot of work. It's a lot of traumatic work as well. <clears throat> so basically, um, there, there are, you know, with the, the UK's hostile environment, what it does is it, it makes um, things for migrants very, very difficult so, they, so that they voluntarily leave. They have a very stringent visa application process and it costs a lot as well. Um, and even when you do get a visa, you, your rights in this country is very limited. Um, and when it comes to immig- like you know having diff- different types of visas, it's 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 also a hierarchy of migrants. Um, so some migrants are treated worse than others, and some migrants are given more rights than others. But in general, um, most migrants do not have recourse to public funds. So that whole myth about you know immigrants coming here taking our jobs and our benefits is ridiculous because actually. Migrants don't have recourse to public funds. They don't have access to housing. They don't have most migrants don't have access to the, to the job market, especially uh, asylum seekers and um, undocumented migrants, the ones that I deal with. So I'm going to speak specifically about asylum seekers um, and vulnerable migrants. So yeah, they they don't have any recourse to public funds. So they don't have access to healthcare, education, 
um, no political rights, obviously. Um, job mobility is not an option. Asylum seekers are not given the rights to work. And that actually exacerbates their vulnerabilities to ex further exploitation. Um, because if you can't work, you still need to earn money, right? Um, so they often find themselves in precarious situations when they want to earn money and pay back their debts from, from you know, from the debts they incurred from their traffickers, basically. Um, it's very complicated and I can go on and on. And it's very depressing, actually. <laughs> um, but the, the current system basically is so hostile that it actually um, is actually helping traffickers in a way. Um, because if you're giving, if you don't give people, people uh, rights in this country to mobilize and to actually have access to, to basic rights, then they will become undocumented and they will live um, precariously. So it, actually the, the hostile environment is fueling trafficking. Um, border control is fueling trafficking and people smuggling as well. Mm. So um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's very complicated. The whole, the whole narrative of foreigners coming here to take our jobs um, and housing and reap the benefits is, is actually a very cruel joke a very, very cruel joke played on people that are in this situation um, because they would do anything to have the rights to work. Mm. Yeah, and it's kind of sad because actually the UK is one of the countries that receives the least amount of migrants coming over and actually we're offering them hardly anything and it's quite scary for these people coming over usually, you know, because they're forced or they don't have a choice. They're at the mercy of the governments that of the countries that receive them there is no guidance for people coming over that every country has to abide to it's really down to which other government of the country that you arrive at and you're relying on their benevolence and actually in the UK there's hardly any of that and you're sort of especially if you're an irregular migrant there aren't many options open to you and it's down to services such as East and Southeast Asian Scotland and SEAC, which is Southeast and East Asian Centre people doing that work out of their time and it's really hard work as you mentioned um, to try and help these people and without those services which are actually severely underfunded and extremely draining for those people working at those places um, to try and help them out and yeah it's kind of really really sad so no thank you so much for your work Kimi and I yeah I, I don't know what it's like and I just want people to know that if you want to support um, organizations like East and Southeast Asian Scotland, like you can donate and there's so much that you can do if you don't have money, there are other ways that you can help. So please yeah. visit their website. Yeah, I mean, please campaign as much as you can as well, or like go online and see if, any, if there are any ways that you can help like raise awareness or just like sign petitions about, um, you know, like opposing the new, the new um, Rwanda um, you know, like de deport, like, you know, going, the, sending um, asylum seekers to Rwanda, Rwanda for processing and also the, the Nationality and Borders Bill, just, just oppose it as much as you can um, because this is the, these are the reasons why things are so hard for, for a lot of asylum seekers and irregular migrants and refugees um, and people that need, need humanitarian support. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. And of course, sort of mental health is something that is rarely talked about. And actually, people who do come over, they don't really receive the help that they need. So focusing, Sophia, on the mental and physical impact uh, that we know people face in this world, especially marginalized people who are especially vulnerable due to racism, ableism, xenophobia, the list goes on. 
how has your own experiences shaped the work that you do within the sphere? So first, I wanted to just highlight the importance of the work Kimi's doing because it influences so much of the spheres of life that we don't even recognize on a day-to-day basis. So for example, I'm um, every week I teach maths and English to a forced migrant from Sudan and he's 18. He's been in the country for a year and a bit and his dream is to become electronic engineer. And I can't even begin to imagine and describe the horrors that he's already had to go through to to get to the country. And now he's in the country and I can't even believe I'm calling him lucky in that he's just, you know, is in the process of getting the asylum and everything should be going well. But then to realise there's another eight years of hoops he's got to jump before he can even think about doing an apprenticeship or going to uni to, to achieve his dream. And the amount of support with the charity that I work with in order to um you know chew to him it's just it's just getting more and more inundated with requests like these and I think what we're severely forgetting is that if at its very basic level people are going on about how this isn't a them problem like try going to any business any shop any place in your local area and there are people who are going through this not not too far from where you live and it is having an impact um so yeah, I just I just wanted to highlight that what Kimmy's doing is really important. In terms of my own lived experience, I can't claim to have the same experience of forced migration as my family have. I see the effects of it. I see the generational trauma it causes. I see how my dad has been treated differently to other people of similar age from slightly more well-off or different racial backgrounds to him. But I guess all I can say is my most of my experience on these topics have been as an outsider to experiencing the hate um I've had some very very minor instances of uh anti-Asian racism towards me but I think because I'm quite racially ambiguous uh I'll never know the extent of to what if what I experience is racism or sexism or whatnot but it makes me very aware of the privilege that I have um in the work that I do and I think like we joked about it earlier about how we're impulsive and blah 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 but (laughs) I do have a bit of an ego as a designer and when you are researching and working in this these topics which are about working so closely with communities and making sure that their voices are heard because it's not even giving them a voice they're speaking we just need to listen you cannot have an ego to do that work you cannot and you also need to be very aware of what your own background and circumstance brings into that conversation. Yes, I'm British Vietnamese. Yes, I speak Vietnamese. I've never lived in Vietnam. I don't know that experience. I am really highly educated. I don't know the experience of living otherwise. Yes, I was working class. I'm middle class now. Like, I have my own issues that I identify with that. But it's always about a consistent state of reflecting and recognising that this work isn't about you. And I think lived experience be that of someone who has been oppressed or as someone who's like low-key contributing to the oppressive side of the system we all need to have that internal reflection before we can even begin to do the dismantling work and it's an ongoing process Mm. I don't know if that answered your question (laughs) no absolutely absolutely and um I actually was listening to a podcast that you did with your family for genomics I believe it was for the company 
that you worked for and you were interviewing your granddad um, or your family, actually quite a few members of your family. And one of them mentioned working as a translator in healthcare. And I immediately started welling up. As soon as he said that, I was just like, I could feel the tears like underneath my eyes because I don't know why, but immediately gave me a very visceral image of just people arriving and um, imagine not being able to speak that language. And that, of course, was the experience of my family as well. And it brought back memories of speaking to Jack Shear, who works, Jack Shear OBE, I should say, um, who works at the Vietnamese Mental Health Services. And, you know, he was trying his best in the 80s and the 70s to help and not really finding the ground or the foundations or the funding in order to do that and it just I don't know it just gave me a very profound feeling of sadness I guess because again it was just um, that connection I guess my family also coming from Vietnam and Mm -hmm. yeah I have a very complicated relationship with that kind of thing because like you I have a very distant view of it right they gave me an upbringing that was different to theirs yet still you know have this connection to that and um yeah I don't know just I just cry very easily these days I think that's what it comes down to (laughs) like anything would set me off so thank you to your family for their work oh pleasure actually on that um so that podcast was about talking about why East Asian people are typically reluctant to um donate DNA and he actually, it's my granddad who's the translator, and he actually went onto this real big tangent about he's very Catholic, right? And like times that he'd encourage people to not have, for example, abortions because, you know, of his beliefs, but like very much assuming those or piling those onto like his job. And what does that mean? And what does that mean in an unregulated system? And what does translation mean in different cultural contexts? Um, and I think these are all the sorts of things that we need to bear in mind as people who are you know, part of this journey currently. Um, In my day job, I'm looking a lot about like conversations around race, what that means, how we're embedding race in science in a fair and equitable way. And I think a huge part of that needs to recognize, yes, the systems that we're working in are really Western, but also anything that claims to be non-biased is not biased, is biased, you know? And so, like, what does translation mean in a cultural context? And how do we make sure that we, like, interview and research fairly and all of that kind of stuff? Mm, And so often East and Southeast Asians, by the way, all listeners, when Sophia said East before, she did the inverted commas, so you know that. It's a complex term that doesn't envelop all the communities that we want them to. But... (laughs) annoyingly but um yeah it's often east and southeast asians don't get included in that conversation right like hey wait a second don't forget us like we also need sort of uh, attention and a specialized look in how you deal with um our health care and not only our physical health but our mental health too so i want to actually move on to how we all ended up working together because i met kimmy you through sort of developing be seen and that was you know a couple of years ago now and sophia i met you because um i started using the thing you created for slack sort of telling everyone that you're on your period and i thought that was so cool and uh, i followed you and has been fangirling ever since but actually (laughs) (laughs) we came to work together on this new service Uh, so Kimmy can you tell us a bit about um, the On Your Side this new sort of service? Yeah sure Um, yeah so On Your Side is a new UK-wide support and reporting service for anyone in the UK 
who identifies as East or Southeast Asian, including people with mixed heritage, and also even those who experience uh, racism if you are perceived to be East or Southeast Asian, even if you're not um, from East or Southeast Asia. Um, anyone who, who are experiencing racism or any forms of hate. Um, and yeah, so on your side includes a 24 seven helpline and a website where you can find support and make a report or seek support. So I guess it start like, the, I guess if you go way back uh, to 2019 slash 2020, um, at the outbreak of COVID, um, as you both probably know, um, East and Southeast Asian communities in UK and also like throughout the West were um, facing an increase in racist incidents. And this um, spike in hate crime and incidents highlighted the gap of support um, that our communities that was offered to our communities. Um, so a lot of East and Southeast Asian community-led movements formed and grew um, you know, aimed at preventing racism and also raising awareness, which is amazing to watch actually. Um, yeah, so it was a really cool movement. Um, and in March, 2021, following the first national conference of hate crime faced by East and Southeast Asian communities, 28 East and Southeast Asian-led organizations joined Protection Approaches, a hate crime prevention charity that I worked for. Um, and they called for a new hate crime support and reporting service for East and Southeast Asian communities. Um, at the same time, the Department of Leveling Up were actually developing um, this um, Hong Kong Bienno Welcome Program funding scheme um, to support new Hong Kong arrivals um, in the UK. Um, and because of the work and advocacy that was done by the East and Southeast Asian communities and these organizations, um, they actually included um, like hate crime support and reporting as one of the grant schemes um, designed specifically to set up a service like this. So, yeah, I guess because of like the hard work of, you know, the various East and Southeast Asian organizations and PA raising the profile of these issues had really sort of helped. Um, you know, push this agenda really and, and, and set aside, you know, um, a budget for, for this service to be launched. Yeah, I think it's so incredible that only two years ago, a lot of us didn't know each other and we started experiencing this really worrying uptick in hate crimes and incidents. And then a lot of us sort of finding our feet, finding each other, and it's now two years later and this service has been developed, which is catered specifically for East and Southeast Asian people. And I had the great, I think, privilege and honor of working on it and in very minor capacity as a graphic designer, like purely aesthetic, like nothing important, by the way, everyone, not nowhere near as important as Kimmy and Sophia's work. Don't protest, I know you're going to- I but disagree, I actually disagree. Yeah, I disagree completely. <laughs> edit yourself out <laughs> and I, all the campaigning before yeah, yeah to yeah. raise awareness to this issue <laughs> on a political level Literally. I had the honor of understanding the research that went into developing the service and you know it wasn't something that you came up with overnight thought okay let's just make the service put it online whack and there it goes like you consulted so many people and tried to get really good understanding of what was missing what were the problems with other services how it wasn't catering specifically towards the issues that the East and Southeast Asian community face. And a part of that was your workshop that you led, Sophia, about the design of how it should be made accessible and should best serve the people it should be helping. So could you talk a bit more about that design process and um, making sure that it's as effective as it can possibly be? 
absolutely um I want to start by saying I am not a graphic designer like I don't have the skills that Amy has to make things look beautiful and sharp and pristine I can try but I don't what I do is design research so it is making sure that the very core of everything we are designing is done with the people we are designing for at the very center of what we're doing and what that means is not just having their needs and wants in this like little post-it note in the corner and making sure we factor it in it's it's having those real conversations it's testing our ideas it's saying look this is a service we're coming up with do you think this is something you specifically would need and how would you build it and what can we do to make it better for you and compiling all of those thoughts and feelings across a huge majority of different communities and trying to build a service that works for everyone now as you can imagine a service that works for everyone is never going to be perfect and is never going to work for everyone the focus of our work on this project was to specifically look at those who had been marginalized and who otherwise couldn't access another form of hate crime and prevention reporting service right as kimmy already just said the other huge challenge was, again, as Kimi said, is that we were launching a number of different services, right? So there was the phone phone service and support helpline, there's the website, and there's also the database of how all of these learnings are, are collected and fed back to the corresponding organizations. And so I was brought in on the website um, to say, okay, what does a website that communicates this very complicated and very specialized service what is it going to do what language do we use and how do we make it user friendly and the very very first step in that is just analyzing who is this website for and there were a, a huge number like do we do it from the ethnicity or self-defined ethnicity platform do we focus on or do we focus on different roles of people like in the service industry or people who are um in roles where they're more likely to be exploited or do we focus it on people's status within the uk the length of time they've lived in the uk whether or not they're documented or not those were all incredibly important questions which shaped the whole rest of the service and my job was trying to align with as kimmy said there was the department of leveling up there was protection approaches there was the group designing the reportable service there was um EVR who were doing the community outreach how do we make sure that what each of their services are doing are married together in in the first instance and then how do we translate what everyone wants to find out into a really understandable and frank set of questions that we can actually ask the people who would be using our website um and I think without going on too much because I could talk about design for ages <laughs> what was really interesting was the angle that was the easiest to go down given the time scale we had was to work very closely with the community organizers of all these different groups so for example um somebody who works a lot with people who've experienced domestic violence and asking them when you're working with members of your community what are the most challenging things because then that adds a whole nother type of user because that's the person who's witnessing the racism or the hate crime or hate incident happen but isn't necessarily the one reporting on behalf of themselves um and how do we support that person in being the best support to somebody else um so it was a really it was a really rich project in that there was a lot a lot of opinions um 
and a lot of people with completely like uh different priorities on what they should focus on and so we as a designer it's a case of going in and trying to understand okay what are the sources of why you think this way and what features do we need to carry on into our web design build mm. and then at that point that's <laughs> when I'm like okay I have no web design skills and I just hop along <laughs> passing over pass a baton over <laughs> Well, that's what I really enjoyed, actually, when I opened up that meeting, you know, entered the room, the virtual room, and I saw lots of other East and Southeast Asian people facing me, and I thought, oh, this is the first time I have entered a design space, and actually, everyone is from the community that you're trying to help, right, and it was amazing, I really felt so energized by it, and really appreciative of it, that, um, you know, people, Kimmy and Protection Approaches, everyone working on it found it imperative that you should be including the people you're supposed to be helping or at least um, has some knowledge of that lived experience as part of developing that program. So I know, Kimmy, I'm very aware, of course, of the outreach work that you did. And it gave me lots of food for thought as someone who works with BC. And like, we are also trying to organize in our own little space, trying to do what we can. And um, the feedback that you received gave me so much to think about and think actually how are we not serving people what is BC doing that actually we're not representing enough and so Kimmy I wanted to ask you what parts of that research really resonated with you and how do you think on your side will help to resolve those issues yeah yeah yeah. just a wee background on some of the work that went into how the service was shaped I guess um, essentially we are a consortium of 12 East and Southeast Asian community groups Um, and then on top of that Protection Approaches and Stop Hate UK as well as part of this consortium. Um, and um, there was, uh, yeah, so we ran a focus group with 35 community groups that covered almost every corner of the UK, um, South, East England, Midlands, Scotland, Ireland, and so on. Um, and we put out a consultation survey as well, uh, which we had translated to various EC languages. Um, So anyway, the research we conducted with our community partners showed that while 41% of people had experienced a hate crime or hate incident in the last two years, more than half, uh, so that's around 52%, did not report to anyone in any official capacity. So this doesn't just mean reporting to the police. This this could be reporting to your manager at work or uh, like, a I don't know, even seeking help from a community organization. So yeah, 52% people who reported experiencing hate crime had not seek any, uh, had had not sought any help um, and and did not make any report. So um, yeah, so and yeah, among among many of the reasons that they gave us, um, they they what they said was they didn't think that the police or other other reporting services would believe them or take their report seriously, um, and that they feared dealing with um, with authorities basically because of possible re-traumatization, um, difficulty accessing accessing some of these services because of language barriers as well. Um, and then what struck me the most is the unanimous experience of East and Southeast Asian people that have experienced racism or some sort of discrimination in every form, really. And in every sort of situation, um, it could be at work, it could be at school, it could be when you're walking your dog or when you're just out to buy milk. And, and, and a lot of people that we've spoken to, in fact, most um, who didn't report said like, oh, yeah, I just deal with it ourselves, you know, like we're used to it. Um, just very sort of like, you know, very resilient. You just take it, you know. 
And I think that that's very like it's inspiring, you know, the strength that they show and the resilience that they show. But also, like, why do we have to be resilient to this sort of abuse and inequality? Like, this shouldn't be normalized. Um, so yeah, that that this is the, the the aspect of of like I don't know I guess shared experience that really resonated with me because I myself have been um, have been targeted like I've I've experienced uh, assault like I've been punched I've been thrown bottles at I've been called ev- like loads of different types of I don't know racial words that some some don't even like relate to my ethnicity. Um, and and I just just took it, you know, I'm just like, oh, it's, you know, I can't be bothered going to the police or like reporting because what, what's going to happen? Like nothing, nothing good's going to happen. It's just a lot of work, a lot of paperwork and re-traumatization. Um, and yeah, just like very inconvenient <coughs> processes for us to have to go through to, to do anything about any of these abuses. Um, yeah. Yeah, especially I think that idea of not wanting to report it or thinking you don't want to put other people out or take up yeah. people's time or causing trouble. And that's yeah. something which we're trying to come to terms with, right? And say, no, every incident that you experience is very valid and you should be able to talk about it. It doesn't matter how minor you think it is. And um, yeah, every time I look at hate crime or incident figures, I sort of think, mm, but actually you should double that because so many people yeah. probably don't talk about it. So yeah, it's sort of quite an exciting time I think to have this service launch because it's so needed to even not just be a platform to report but also to support as well to encourage people to even talk about it and give them the language and ability and feeling of agency to be able to say no I want to stand up against this and I want to talk about what I've experienced Um, but Sophia I wanted to go over to you because I wanted to know what are the limitations that we face today in terms of design and healthcare, especially when it comes to underrepresented communities. Uh, what are the barriers that are commonly faced, do you think? Okay, so um, a lot of it relates to what Kimmy said in terms of re-traumatizing. Like, Kimmy, first of all, thank you for sharing. And awful that you've gone through those things and as you rightly said like re-traumatizing and having to just do that paperwork I think a lot of the time when you're working in healthcare you're dealing with a lot of people who have been made vulnerable by a diagnosis or a non-diagnosis or a terrible experience within healthcare and then to turn up as a researcher and to say I just need you to dig up all of that what you've been feeling so that I can try and make things better without even a hope or promise that you can actually make things better, I think can be really, really challenging. And I think the first thing that is a barrier for designing healthcare, especially, is research practices which acknowledge the agency of the person and respects um, their boundaries and, and the many different ways that a person could be approached and that's everything from making sure that your consent practices work for people with learning disabilities so that they understand what they are getting into when they're talking to your research all the way through to making sure that you're um you have the right way to like coach be culturally competent when you're carrying out a piece of research or a piece of interview it's it's how do we actually practice what we preach as designers in terms of putting a range of people and a range of needs at the center The second thing is funding. This won't surprise any of you, but predominantly working within within and around the NHS, which is incredibly underfunded as it is, as we all know, to then come up with a lot of ideas which are 
at the face of it quite innovative or quite future facing when a lot of the basic standards of healthcare aren't necessarily in place to you know to to work for everybody as it is how are you how are you going to justify your position so i think the second thing is making sure funding is a huge challenge and to get around that you need to make sure that you are designing effectively for what is happening now um and the third thing is just the classic power structures prejudice power structures i know it's such a i know it's such a stereotype and i know that i'm speaking within our bubble who understand this but it really is a thing white men in power like and again not all white men i'm not saying that you know i'm engaged to one who's wonderful but typically a board of privileged people which in our society tends to be white men do not necessarily see the benefits of prioritizing healthcare design and experience for a range of people and a range of needs and that can make it incredibly hard especially when they're sitting in a very high level in your organization to get anything passed across the door and i'm 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 talking generally yeah but it really as a designer can make things quite challenging and you're coming in to do a project about racism for example and people aren't even willing to use the word bias so you're you think you're starting at square one you're actually starting at square <laughs> minus 10 um so yeah a lot of my job as much as i'd love it to be about the actual work and the research and the innovations and the ethics around it actually becomes a lot a lot of stakeholder management mm. and those are the <laughs> I recently saw a, um, I think it must have been a TikTok video, where I get all my information, obviously, TikTok. (laughs) (laughs) Someone was talking about this panel that they came across, and it was about endometriosis. And there were six people on the panel, and they were like all white men. And the person said, in the whole world, this is a global panel that's being broadcasted online. Could they not find a single woman? That's insane. I know. They don't even have vaginas. I know, none of them had a uterus. Like, how is this even possible? Um, But yeah, it was just, it's funny. You just have to laugh. If you don't laugh, you'll cry. So yeah, exactly. I always say that. (laughs) There you go. I wanted to round off on the on your side service and what you think and hope it will achieve. And, um, you know, obviously it's something which is a new service and it's going to hopefully push those boundaries of, you know, having this really Eurocentric approach to health. What do you think and hope that on your side will achieve? Kimmy, how about you? Um, yeah, um, so yeah, I, I think it will be great if, um, it would be a great achievement if the East and Southeast Asian community felt heard, at least felt like they were cared for because this service is um, designed with them in mind. Um, But mostly I would like to see like an increased awareness of people's understanding that they don't have to be quiet and feel like their experiences are normal, should be normalized. Um, And I also personally would like to, to, to see that there will be enough evidence gathered um, just to demonstrate that the East and Southeast Asian community, uh, we're not like a single monolithic community. We are diverse. So I think the information gathering from this service is going to be such an important part for, for that. Um, and we are diverse. We're varying. We're very dynamic. Um, the East and Southeast Asian communities, need, the East and Southeast Asian communities need to be understood intersectionally. Um, how like various, you know, sections of the community are um, more vulnerable to certain types of discrimination, exploitation, um, and hate and disparities. Um, 
that's something that I really, really hope that that would, you know, that kind of data that we can sort of generate um, to some extent, hopefully. And also, like, I didn't mention this earlier, but also with this service, as well as the 24-hour support or helpline, we can, there's also the option to be referred to a casework advocate to offer, um, like, uh, further support, like bespoke support to that to that person, to be um, signposted to other services that that would benefit them. So that could be anything like mental health services or housing or any you know um, advice on immigration things like that. So alongside with SIAC and EVR, um, we just we we designed and led a thing called cultural awareness training for these casework advocates, um, and also the helpline operators as well. <clears throat> And it's just something that I've, I've personally been advocating for um, even since the early days of ESAS. I mean, it's mainly mainly like what I advocate for with ESAS. And it's just drawing from interactions that I had with local statutory, statutory bodies and local authority in Scotland um, when, whenever delivering services or policies to, you know, that are to do with marginalised communities. And they, they have a habit of calling these communities hard to reach. Um, when really, like, I always wondered, like, why, why do you call why have you decided to label us specifically, the East and Southeast Asian community is hard to reach? Does that make things easier for you that you've missed a lot of things and, and that you've completely neglected uh, a lot of this, you know, people from these communities? Um, yeah, and, and how a lot of East and Southeast Asian people always felt, you know, some a lot of us have felt excluded from a lot of these general services and conversations, like, like both of you have said. Um, and also a lot of it comes from hiding behind poor data terminologies as well. So no, not, no, no terminologies to describe pretty much 13 out of the 14 East and Southeast Asian uh, ethnicities, you know, that we are um, trying to represent. So we, I, I want to see like an increased awareness um, in understanding that we are uh, a diverse um, community. And I want there to be a greater sort of um, cultural awareness so that so that, that there will be greater cultural competence as well when delivering services and designing services for everybody and to, to, to not just label us as hard to reach <laughs> and actually reach us and know get to know this community and, and at least know where East and Southeast Asia is on the map for a start. Uh, sorry, that's, I'm, this is becoming a bit of a rant. <laughs> right like labeling us as hard to reach puts the onus on us to make ourselves reachable which is the whole yeah. reason why all our groups exist in the first place exactly and 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 and, and they and they say this on an official capacity they actually say this on the government documents that like we are hard to reach communities yeah. and it's just, they say the same thing about the gypsy roma community and it's just they just they're just not bothered to really be culturally aware you know, so they're, that's why they're culturally incompetent. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I just, I guess the, the best way to support is to just like spread the word, um, tell your East and Southeast Asian friends and family that we are on your side <laughs> <laughs> about this, about the service. Yeah. No, I'm so glad. I'm so glad that finally, if, you know, um, if I do ever come across someone who sort of has had a problem, be it, you know, someone's throwing verbal abuse at them something major I mean it's all major uh, but any issue that they face I've always felt sort of powerless to try and help or not knowing how to do the right thing so it feels really good to now to be able to finally say no wait you can go to on your side they have people who are 
trained and know especially how to help you so no thank you so much for that and of course language matters it matters so much so thank you for that and yeah Sophia what are you hoping that the service will achieve? So I'm going to do a very bad thing as a researcher and say that I actually do want it to pass the grandma test like twofold right because if if my grandma feels like she can use this service with support because she's not exactly the best on the phone or internet but with support that's how you know you have reached people and that people understand the value and I think the biggest thing to basically everything Kimmy said plus recognizing that some people have experienced racism and these horrific hate crimes and incidents as just part of their normal lives so much so that they don't even realize that what is happening is wrong and I think until we can get to a point where our own members of our community can recognize that that's what they're experiencing and also recognize that they might be contributing to some of that some of those some of those across different diasporas then it's going to be very difficult to get anywhere and as part of getting on that journey it's not just about working with and supporting with our own communities and educating our own communities but it's also about educating allies and creating actual true allyship because I remember one of the research questions we did when we were researching for on your side was to say does it matter to you if someone working on your case or someone that you're reporting to is of the same ethnic background to you and you would be surprised how many people said we just want someone to understand and to listen properly and as Kimmy has said with these trainings our lived experience has proved that listening properly is an incredibly difficult thing to do and needs to be done respectfully so it's about recognizing this behavior in and ourselves of when we've experienced it and when we've contributed to it and then also making sure that we are just equipped and those who are supporting us are equipped to listen properly that's where I think on the on your side is really gonna make a huge difference. Mm, yeah I think this process has made me think a lot about different forms of justice because I think people will think oh if something's happened to you that's really hurt you maybe you would want to seek punitive justice like you want to see someone punished in order to feel better but actually I think some of the time and certainly this has come out of the research is that usually people just want to be validated and listened to and someone to have said yes your experience was real and um, we'll find a way to help you get better that's why this idea around a supporting service rather than a reporting service really sort of hit me quite hard so um, yeah I hope that you know whoever's listening please do go onto the website on your side website and find out more about it support in any which way you can including amplifying it and make sure as many people know about it as possible. So um, yeah, thank you for everything that you've told us today, giving us a lot of food for thought. And um, I hope you enjoy this segue because of course the next question is a food question. Um, my final thing is I really need to know for both of you, are you team rice or team noodles? I rice. Think... <laughs> Straight away. I'm not even gonna entertain. Always, always, always. Strong answer, strong answer. How about you, Kimmy? Uh, rice because I'm Southeast Asian but then again I can't I can't assume all Southeast Asians like rice only um, so I'm not going to give that as a reason I just love rice homogenize <laughs> <laughs> us Kimmy I know right jeez just as I was saying oh we're, we're totally diverse and dynamic <laughs> varied I remember um, I used to go wing yip as a kid with my bear 
and my grandma and she would go to the rice section to just get the the standard sack and it was like um I don't even know the brand to this day I just know it as the dragon brand wow. but like massive green dragon and then there was this red medal this plastic tacky yes. medal yes you know the one isn't it yeah, I know the one I, I buy the same one every time I used to cut the ribbon off and award it to myself <laughs> you know, be like, oh, I mean it is to my brother it is very medal like it is wow such a great marketing ploy hey stick a medal on it <laughs> <laughs> i love that and finally uh please plug your website your social media okay plug wise okay i'm gonna do two plugs yeah my social media is sophia lu so s-o-p-h-i-a-l-u-u and then the number 22 sphere lu 22 um sphere uk is my website we can see like the projects i'm on at the moment and I'd also just like to plug, and it's quite a sensitive one, but I'm doing a project soon where I am launching a mini video series and podcast series um, talking about actionable ways that you can support victims of child sex abuse. But the advice is coming from us victims and survivors ourselves. And the idea is to try and be um, approaching a difficult subject joyfully and respectfully. Um, and I'm really, really keen to uh, hear from any of you who might have had such lived experience to take part and help shape the project. Um, and if you're interested in doing that, please contact me directly on Instagram or through my email on my website. Thank you so much, Sophia. I really appreciate that. As usual, you, yeah, all the work that you do, I just truly, truly admire. So thank you so much. And uh, yes, oh, Kimmy. Good job. <laughs> Thanks How for having you? me on as well, Amy. It's been of lovely. course. Could chat all day. I'm part of the podcast I listen to on the bus. It's nice. <laughs> How about you, Kimmy? Uh, how can anyone find you or find out more about on your side? Yeah, so we've we've got um, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. So please follow us on that. Um, yeah, so on your side is an independently branded, culturally competent, accessible, and well used UK wide third party support and reporting service for East and Southeast Asian communities who experience any form of um, racism, or hate, or discrimination, or inequalities. So even if it's not a racial incident, uh, like a racially abusive um, attack or incident, you can still um, contact us if you experience any form of hate, whether it be based on your sexuality, your gender identity, your religion. Um, you can still contact us if you are, you know, obviously if you want culturally competent support. Um, and this service, uh, which will include a twenty-four-seven helpline, will also have a website where you can self-report and the option of ongoing casework advocacy support as well that I think this community really deserves. Um, yeah, please check our website and um, tell your friends and family about us and about the service. Yes, you've heard it here first. Thank you so much to Kimmy and Sophia. I really appreciate it. Great. Thank you so much, Amy. Okay. And so nice to see you, Sophia. Yeah, Have a nice you evening, everyone. Take care. Bye. 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 So that was Kimmy and Sophia talking about On Your Side, the new hate crime report and supporting service in the UK. Their website is onyoursideuk.org. Do check them out, bookmark it on your phone. So if you ever see any forms of identity-based violence towards someone EC, you know where to go to 
get support and advice. And of course, if you yourself suffer from harassment and you identify as East or Southeast Asian, there is somewhere to go. I think it's such an exciting new service and I'm really grateful towards Sophia and Kimmy for allowing me to be part of the development process and I can certainly vouch for how inclusive it is. Uh, of course, check out ESA Scotland where Kimmy works and she also founded that organisation. That's esascotland.org and also Sophia's website. So her name, S-O-P-H-I-A and then luu.co.uk to find out about everything that she does. She is really cool. I am secretly such a big fan of hers. Of course, do follow Be Seen at bseen.co.uk. Our social media is B-E-S ea.n for instagram and the same with an underscore for twitter thanks so much yet again and chat to you soon bye